Well, good morning, everyone. Wasn't that a great worship service today? I mean, you did a phenomenal job of worshiping the Lord today. God was glorified, the body was edified, and Satan was horrified by what just happened here this morning. As uh, we have just heard, we are going to start a new series today, and we're going to begin with the book of Philippians. Philippians is one of my favorite books of the Bible written by the Apostle Paul, and the theme of Philippians, among other themes, is this, joy. It is called the Epistle of Joy. He wants us to live a joyous and fulfilling and successful and exciting life in Christ. Now, that's kind of an interesting topic because when Paul wrote this, Paul was imprisoned in Rome. This is one of four uh, letters, including Colossians' decisions and uh, Philemon, that he wrote while he was in prison. And on the overhead here, I want to show you a picture. This is the Mamertine prison where Paul was imprisoned in the first century. Now, since the first century, obviously everything you see from the very bottom up has been added since the first century. It is now a church which is rather ironic that they turned a prison into a church. But this prison was uh, made in the 7th century B.C. It was the main prison in Rome. It was where they took the notorious criminals of the day. And as you can see, or you may not be able to read it, there is a little plaque there that says Peter and Paul. Both Peter and Paul were imprisoned at the Mamertine prison at certain times of their life. And this next picture shows you the first floor. This is where... Uh, what doesn't show as as good as I wanted it to, but anyway. Um, This is the first floor. Then you walked into the prison, and in the middle of the floor, Carol and I were in Rome some years ago, and we were leading a trip to the Holy Land, and we took a, a side trip there. And it's a very sobering experience to walk into the Mamertine prison where Peter and Paul were imprisoned. In the middle of this first floor, there is a big hole like this. Now, it's been covered over with a grate now. And therefore, when the prisoners would come in and be, quote, booked at the uh, prison, they would just simply take them over and drop them down into this hole. It dropped 12 feet down to a subterranean area where they would be incarcerated for however long that they needed. This next picture uh, shows you part of that uh, cavern or that prison where they were. The, The steps on the left, of course, have been added. Now, this was not a cush prison where it was air conditioned and where they brought you three meals a day. This was the bare necessities of life. It does not show in this picture, but over on the right-hand side, when you walk down, there is an iron gate there, and the prison was built right next to a sewer, which led to the Tiber River. They didn't feed you very much, and many of those prisoners who were in there died of starvation or injuries that they occurred while they were being arrested. And so when they died... They would just simply open that grate, take their foot, and shove them out into the sewer and close the gate back down again. This final picture shows you a pillar or a stone pillar on the left-hand side there. And that is where the prisoners would be chained. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 13, it says that I come to you in chains in prison. So they would have chained these prisoners so that they couldn't get away if it was possible, but they couldn't get away. So in the midst of all of this, in the midst of being in the Mamertine prison, in the midst of these meager conditions, and and the Romans were particularly cruel to their prisoners, Paul pens these words, and they're found for us in Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. He says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. 
I'll say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. Now think for a minute where he was. Think for a minute the conditions upon which had been imposed upon him. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. How can he possibly rejoice in that? The Lord is near. (laughs) The Lord is near to us this morning as we worshiped him. But the Lord was near to Paul in the Mamertine prison in the first century. Don't be anxious about anything. What? I'm probably going to be killed. It's okay. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything or in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then what happens? And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. How do you explain that logically? which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then he says this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned, he repeats this, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ. How can he do this? How can he say rejoice in the Lord always? And again, I say rejoice. How can he be filled with joy? How can he say, I have learned to be content no matter what the circumstances are? Well, that's what we're going to try to dive into today a little bit and see if we can figure out how he could possibly come to those kind of conclusions. Back in the 19th century, the country of India was ruled by the British Empire. And the British occupational forces would go there, much like the British did in America before the Revolution, and they would kind of oversee the country and so forth. Well, the British troops were a little bit bored as they were there in Calcutta, and so they decided to do something uh, to help pass the time. And so they built a golf course, of all things. So in 1829, these soldiers decided to build a golf course. It was the second oldest golf course in the world, only exceeded by the golf course of of St. Andrews back in England. And so they called it the Royal Calcutta Golf Club. This is what it looks like today. Obviously, it didn't look like that in 1829, but this is what it looks like today. It's still going, the second oldest golf course in the world. And so when the soldiers built this course, at the conclusion of the course, they started to play golf, and they ran into a major problem. It seems like in 1829, much as it is today, because of the religious understandings there, monkeys were everywhere. If you've ever ever been to India, you know monkeys are all over the place. 
And so they would, uh, Ray, they would hit the ball off the tee and go down to pick up their ball. But the monkeys thought, this is great fun. And so they would go pick up the ball and throw it back and forth to one another. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it would be in the middle of the fairway and they'd throw it into the sand trap and then just kind of laugh at the people. Or other times it'd be over in the rough and they'd take it and throw it on the green. And so they said, what are we going to do about all these monkeys? And he said, well, let's trap them and get them off the course. So they did. They trapped all the monkeys, took them off. But you know what happened? (laughs) They came right back again. And so they came up with this ingenious theme that they're going to build a fence around the golf course. And so they did. They built a fence around it. But I don't know how smart the British were or the soldiers at that time, but they obviously didn't know that monkeys could climb fences. And so it wasn't very long until the monkeys climbed right back over into the golf course again, and they had the same problem. Now, this was a source of much agitation and arguing and deciding what, how you're going to play this, what are you going to do about this, and they were getting in arguments and fights all the time, so they said, we've got to make a rule about this monkey business. And so they made the Royal Calcutta, <laughs> the Royal Calcutta Golf Club Monkey Rule, and the rule was this. Play the ball where the monkey drops it. (laughs) If he drops it in the fairway, good. If he drops it in the rough, too bad. Play the ball where the monkey drops it. And you know, life can be a lot like that. Paul knew the heights of being on top of the world and having plenty. And Paul also knew the desperation of being in the Mamertine prison. He knew the degradation of being tarred and feathered and run out of town. In the midst of all of this, he says, I have what? Learned the secret of contentment. I will rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I've learned that when times are good, I need to be careful. I need to be careful that I don't get pompous and arrogant and think it's all me. I've done it. I have also learned to be content in bad times, not to complain about it, not to curse God for what has happened, but to play the ball where the monkey finds it, where the monkey drops it. I've decided that wherever it is in life, whether I'm up on top or whether I'm down below, whether I'm in plenty or I'm in want, I need to be content. Now, what does Paul mean when he he says, I have learned to be content? Content does not mean that we're lazy. Content does not mean that we don't care what happens. Content does not mean that we have no ambition at all. When Paul uses the word, I have learned to be content in any and all circumstances, what he is saying is that no matter what happens to me, I have learned that God will see me through, and I have such confidence and belief in God That no matter where I find myself at this point in life, I have decided that I am going to trust Him. We sang earlier, no turning back, no turning back. Through it all, we sang earlier today, my eyes are on you. So let's see if we can find what Paul's secret is. First of all, life has many choices that we can choose. I didn't, all, some of those choices are good. I didn't choose to be in America, to be born in America, but I was. But life has circumstances that we can control. 
Pastor Kurt said to us last week that we never know the consequences of a great decision. And there is a principle about life here that says this, the more good choices that we make in life, the better our options for the future. So if we study and do well in high school, we don't have to, but we have the option of going to college. If we decide that we're going to be a plumber or a salesman or whatever, and we study and show ourselves approved in that particular area and become proficient in it, our options open up the options of a better job available to us. So the more good choices that we make, the more good options that we have in the future. Maritally, it's the same way. Some of you might be here today and you're not married yet. You literally have thousands of options to choose from. Now, they probably won't choose you, but you do have that option of choosing them. But, but if we choose an option of marrying someone just because of their physical attractiveness or looks, the chances are it's not going to go very far. But if we make the choice to choose a partner in life that shares the same value systems that we have, the same ideas, the same spiritual understandings that we have, our chances of success, our options of success are, are much higher. We have a choice as to how we're going to live our life physically. We have a choice as to what we're going to eat, whether or not we're going to exercise, how we're going to take care of our body. And when we do and when we make those choices, our options become better for us. But the greatest choice that we have in life is spiritually. Because God has said to us that all of us are guilty. We've all fallen short of what God expects of us. But he says, I am going to offer you a way out. He said, I am offering to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and set you into my kingdom and allow the Holy Spirit to dwell within you, to give you guidance and understanding in life. And when it's all over, I'm going to receive you into my heaven that there you and I can be forever together. Now, to me, that's a choice that every single one of us has to make. And when we make that choice, the options then become much more available to us in the future. Conversely, if we make bad choices, sometimes those consequences are severe. Everybody in this room has made some bad choices in life. Sometimes they're insignificant and sometimes they're not. A few years ago, I received a letter from a friend of mine who was a member of the congregation where I was pastoring at the time. This was an individual, he was in his uh, late 20s. He went to a Tampa Bay Buccaneers football game with some of his buddies. They began to uh, drink, and they drank more than they should. And eventually, it came out that he was over the legal limit for inebriation or being drunk. So he was driving home, and as he drove home, he had an accident. And within that accident, he killed someone, or someone was killed. So he was arrested, and he was tried for manslaughter, and he was convicted, and he was sentenced to seven years in jail. Now, this is a man who had a wife and two kids. At that time, they were eight and six years old. And we tried to help him the best we could, but the consequences were there. That one bad decision that he made led to severe consequences. And I wrote back and forth with him several times as he was imprisoned there. And one letter particularly stood out to me, and I want to quote from the letter that he wrote to me. And he said this, Pastor Bates, I made a bad choice, and now 
I am paying a severe consequence. I will be out of my family's life for seven years. Only now, when I got to this point, did I realize how good I had it. Don't make those choices which potentially will lead to severe consequences. Now, consequences that are a result of our decisions, we can accept that. We can say, well, that's fair. I made a good choice, got a good option. Made a bad choice, got a good option. But sometimes life has random events, random choices that are just simply out of our control. We have absolutely no control over them. I told you I was born in America. I didn't have any choice over that. I was born into a Christian home. I, I didn't choose that. I didn't have any choice of that at all. I, was, I grew up with loving parents who cared for me, who loved me, who took me to church and taught me the principles of Christianity. And I didn't have any choice of that. But those choices have severely affected my life in a most positive way. And there are other times in life where random events happen to us and they're not our fault. We don't know why they are, but they simply are just bad. Somehow there is a downturn in the economy and our job is eliminated and we lose our job. It wasn't anything, we didn't have anything to do with it. And we wonder what happened. Sometimes our spouse of, of many years passes away. We didn't have anything to do with it. Sometimes a friendship falls apart or sometimes an accident alters our life. They weren't our fault. But now we have to say, what are we going to do about it? Paul says, I have learned to be content whether the good things have happened or whether those bad things have happened. The monkey takes the ball and throws it in the rough. Now, as human beings, we, we are much better at complaining about the bad things that happen to us than giving thanks for the good things that happen to us. Wouldn't you agree with that? And so when the monkey takes the ball down the fairway and throws it into the rough, I'm sure that the people were not very happy, and they probably cursed that monkey out and chased him all over the place. When he took it in the rough and threw it over into the green or the fairway, they probably said, okay, good. So we have a tendency to do the same thing. When good things happen to us, we say, oh, I must have done that. And when bad things happen to us, we must say, hey, God, why did you do that to me? Ever been there? Well, random good and random bad happens. And Paul says, praise the Lord anyway. I will rejoice in the Lord anyway because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No matter what happens to me in life, I can get through it. Because God is my Savior, and He has promised never to leave me nor forsake me. He has promised to walk through me, even through the valley of the shadow of death. God will see me through. I've learned to be content. Life is a constant mixture of good things and bad things. Take, for example, Joseph, the biblical Joseph. Joseph was born into wealth. His father Jacob was one of the wealthiest men of his day, had all of the things that one could desire. So he grew up pampered. He grew up in a very wealthy household. That's good. But he had 11 brothers. And his 11 brothers didn't particularly like Joseph. That's bad. But his father uh, identified Joseph as the pet, so to speak, and he made him a famous coat. It was a coat of many colors, and it was beautiful, and that is good that your father would give you such a nice gift. But his 11 brothers didn't particularly appreciate it. 
In fact, his 11 brothers were very jealous of him. And one time when they were out away from home, the 11 brothers sold him into slavery into Egypt. Oh, that's bad. And so he was sent down to Egypt. But fortunately for him, he was adopted by the Pharaoh. And he was brought into the family of the Pharaoh, which also is a very wealthy community. And so that's good. He got to grow up in wealth again. But then... Potiphar's wife decided that she was going to make a play for Joseph, and so she tried to seduce Joseph. Oh, that's bad. But then Joseph, true to his faith and true to his principles and value system, says, no, I'm not going to have anything to do with this. You are Potiphar's wife. I'm not going to do it. That's good. But then Potiphar's wife (laughs) accused him anyway and said, he raped me. And that's bad. And so Joseph was sent into a prison and basically forgotten about for a long period of time. That's bad. But then God came upon Joseph and said to him, I'm going to help you be able to interpret dreams. And so he began to interpret dreams, not just for the people that were in the prison, but for others as well. And that's really good. But then nobody paid any attention to him and he continued to rot in that jail for years. That's bad. And then one time Potiphar had a dream, the Pharaoh had a dream, and he brought um, Joseph in, and Joseph was able to accurately interpret the dream. Well, that's good. But then we know that he he made Joseph the um, caretaker or the overseer of many things within his kingdom, and that's good. But then drought came upon the land for seven years, and that's bad. But then Joseph decided... That God had given him this dream that during the seven good years he should store things up. So that's good. But then he discovered that his people who were in Israel were starving to death because they had not done that. And that's bad. But then his family came down to Egypt. Joseph was able to eventually help them and able to reunite with them and they lived happily ever after. So that's good. Now... If you have lived long enough, your story is not probably going to be to the extremes that Joseph had, but every single one of us has had some good things to happen, and every single one of us has had some bad things to happen. Every single one of us has made some good choices, seen good results. We've made bad choices, paid severe consequences. We've had things that happened to us at random we didn't have anything to do with that were good. We've had things that happened to us at random that were bad. We have to learn to play the ball where the monkey drops it. And Paul says, I have learned to be content in any and every circumstance because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Life is simply an exercise in strategic uncertainty because we never know what's going to happen next. And that's good. We wouldn't want to live our life if we knew all the days from the beginning to the end ahead of time. I mean, it would be boring. But life is full of serendipity moments. It's full of excitement. It's full of joy. It's full of anticipation. And that's what makes life joyous as it is. But sometimes in the midst of that joy and anticipation and excitement, bad things happen. And although our long-term future is secure in Christ, if we are a believer in Him, He said, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. I'm going to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. I will be faithful to you. I will love you. We know that our long-term future is secure in Christ. 
our short-term future is very insecure. Nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Nobody knows what situations are going to arise. Can we say with the Apostle Paul, I have learned to be content in any and every situation because when we put our faith in Christ, when we say, I believe in who He is, my eyes are on Him. This does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that we know everything. I've been a pastor for a few years, and there's still a lot of things that I don't totally understand. Trusting in God is not saying we have all the answers. I don't know why some of these bad things happen. I don't understand why such and such did these things. It doesn't make sense to me. But I trust in God that He knows the way. I trust in God enough that I know His Word is true, and I know that He will see me through no matter what. Though I go through the storms, my eyes are on him. I do what I do because he did what he did. Now, what is the practical application of this? How do we do this? How do we become content in each and every situation in life? I want to, I'm going to ask Deb if she would put verse 8 back up on the board again. It's very simple. How do we stay positive? How do we continue to praise? How do we rejoice anyway? How do we give God credit when the things are good? How do we still trust in Him when things are bad? Well, there's only two steps. The first step is I've made a decision that this is what I'm going to do. I made a decision to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The second thing that Paul says to us is in verse 8. He says, if there is anything excellent or praiseworthy, if you want to live a life that is filled with excellence... If you want to live a life that praises the Lord with no matter what happens to you in life, then we need to look at this verse. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true. And then he says at the very end, think about such things. Now, let me go into that word a little bit before we finish this section. The word that is used in the NIV here is think. Some translations use the word consider. Some translations use the word dwell. When he says, think on these things, he is not talking about just a fleeting thought. He is talking about allowing those thoughts to dwell on them, to make them part of our life, to incorporate them, to embrace them, to bring them in. And so, personally, I like the word dwell better here than I do think about such things, because you can think about them and then go on to something else. He's saying, allow them to permeate who you are. And he's, these are six filters and these six filters are what we look at anytime we have to make a decision, anytime we want to determine our attitude, anytime that we're talking about what we should do in life. These are six filters that run, we run through in order to keep us rejoicing all the time. The first one he says is whatever is true. Now, we're in the midst of a lot of political campaigns, and as most of us know, it's really tough to figure out what's true and what's not, isn't it? So when you listen to the campaign ads, everybody's a liar. I don't know what the real truth is. But he says we have to dwell on those things which are true. Now, that means there is one standard for truth, and it's not with either of our political candidates. It's not a political speech. It's not with either candidate. What the truth is is God's Word. And so, therefore, when we are going to say, I'm going to dwell on this, we look at everything in light of what does God's Word say about this. If God's Word says this is true, I can embrace it, I can bring it in, and I can dwell on it. 
The second thing that he says to us is this, whatever is noble. Whatever is noble. The word for noble means honorable or above reproach. If you are getting ready to make a decision, if you're having an attitude of some kind, you have to ask yourself the question, is this an honorable thing to do? Is this above reproach or is this a little bit shady? Is this something that is honorable and I can look at it with truth? Or is this something that maybe I've got to shade the truth a little bit? He says, if you want to rejoice, you have to make sure that it is honorable. The next thing that he says is, is this, think on those things, whatever is right. And the word here means just or fair. He says, is this the fair thing to do or is this going to hurt someone else? Is this the just thing to do? Is this something that I can be proud of doing? Am I not taking advantage of someone if I make this kind of a decision? The next thing that he says is whatever is pure. The word for pure means undefiled or unspoiled. If we take a glass of water, and it was clean water, but we take a clump of dirt and put it in there, it's still 95% water, but we probably wouldn't drink it. Because it's been soiled, it's been defiled. And so God says, your attitude needs to be pure. Your motiva- this speaks to our motivation. Your motivation for the decisions you make, for the actions that you choose, for the attitudes that you have, need to be pure and undefiled before the Lord. The next is, he says, whatever is lovely. Now, he's not talking about a physical characteristic here, of course. What he is talking about here is that which is lovely in a spiritual sense. The word actually means that which calls forth love. So if you said, I'm going to dwell on those things which call forth love. If I'm in a relationship with someone, I want to treat them in such a way that it calls forth love. I want to treat them and make such decisions that it calls forth love in people, not decisiveness, not, excuse me, not divisiveness. I don't want to do those things and say those things which are going to cause division. I want to do and say those things which bring us together in unity and which calls forth love. And finally, he says, whatever is admirable. And that particular word means, and sometimes it's uh, translated, whatever is of good report. The concept here is this, whatever things are, and and the word means, whatever things are fit for God to hear. So if you're going to have an action, or you're going to say something, would you say the same thing if you knew that Jesus were sitting beside you? And he says, if you're going to make a decision, would you make that decision knowing that Jesus was sitting beside you and he would hear? Obviously, he does. But would you make that decision knowing that he was sitting beside you and that he was the one that was there with you? Now, here's your assignment for this next week. Those are six filters. If we choose to make those filters part of our life, we can rejoice in the Lord always and again say, I rejoice. We can be content no matter what our circumstances of life are, whether in plenty or whether in want. If we allow our minds to have these six filters on them, we can produce a life that is excellent and praiseworthy unto God. We can produce a life that is significant and meaningful, and it helps not only the people around us, but expands the kingdom of God. So take a look at those six things. True, noble, right, pure, lovely, and admirable. None of us are perfect. 
which one of those six do you feel like, I need to work on this area of my life? There have been times when I have allowed dwelling thoughts to come into my mind that are not, and choose one, that are not true. There's times when I've had actions which are not right. And say, this week, God, I want to ask you to help me become an individual who allows these filters to be part of my life. So here's the summary. Life is sometimes hard. Sometimes it doesn't turn out the way we want. Sometimes circumstances are difficult. Sometimes the storms of life seem to just be chaotic and and move across us. We are not necessarily in charge of all those things that happen to us, but we are in charge of our attitude and our decisions, and we are in charge of allowing these filters of our mind to enable us to rejoice in the Lord always and to be content in any and every circumstance of life. Would you stand with me, please? going to ask our prayer partners to come forward. Maybe God has touched you in some way this morning, and he said to you, I really need to pray about X. It might have been nothing that I've even talked about or shared about here this morning, but it's something that's on your heart, and you really would like to have someone who loves you and cares for you and wants to pray with you. Just feel free as soon as the uh, prayer is offered that you can come forward and meet with these people, and they would be more than happy to share with you and to pray with you and to love with you and to work with you. So let's pray together as we close this morning. Father, that's a tough task to be content in any and every circumstance. And the only way that we can do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. So Father, I ask that I and each member in this congregation today would search our hearts with those six filters and say, am I doing those things which are true? those things which are noble, those things which are right, those things which are of good report. Am I doing those things, Father? And if I am not, quicken my heart to understand where I need to change and what I need to do that I might rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Now, Father, we leave this sanctuary with the gladness of your Spirit in our hearts. We leave filled with the joy of our salvation, and we leave praising you and knowing that through it all, our eyes are on you. For it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.